Welcome back. This is Season 7 of the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org, and we are back. We've got the first episode of the season today, and it's from Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. This episode was recorded at the National Disciple Making Forum. This first episode features Pete Scazzaro, and it's called Implementing Emotionally Healthy Discipleship in Your Church to Deeply Change Lives. Real quick before we jump in, I just want you to remember that you can register for the next National Disciple Making Forum by going to discipleship.org where you can sign up today. Here's Pete about deep change and discipleship. Let me just begin with, we're talking actually here about specifically what I think is our greatest contribution uh, to the discipleship discussion of this conference, which is content and offering, I think, content to for people's deep change, uh, not just simply shallow. I am firmly convinced that the church needs uh, a culture change uh, built out of disciples and leaders who are deeply changed, that that's the only hope for multiplication and the future. But we're talking about a culture that begins with leadership and then, of course, filters down. But the key word, if you could pick up anything, it's deep versus shallow. And uh, so a bit of my own story, uh, came to Christ uh, through uh, in university, uh, into varsity Christian fellowship, some of you may know that, much like crew and navs, and uh, dramatic conversion, you know, primed in all the classic spiritual formation disciplines, began discipling immediately after coming to Christ. Yeah, please come in, we've got room for you. And um, uh, Jerry and I like to say we were evangelical poster children, you know, in terms of we just did it all. Went on staff into varsity, Christian fellowship, and was involved in planting Christian fellowships early on. Was exposed in the very early years to multiracial, uh, God's heart for bridging races and cultures, because the nature of the New York City, New Jersey area at the time, the team, the staff team was multiracial. So thrust me into this world that was not a white suburban world at all. It was, it was inner city, it was Spanish, it was African-American, Asian. And uh, so eventually went to seminary, uh, spent a year at Princeton, two years at Gordon-Conwell, graduated and felt called by God to go back to New York City, because I was in Boston at the time, spent a year in Central America learning Spanish, Uh, and then we moved back to Queens, New York, and uh, actually volunteered in an all-Spanish immigrant church for a year, because we were moving into really, I'm Italian-American, but into the, you know, real, uh, much Spanish-speaking, a much more of a, you know, multiracial neighborhood and, uh, and so I planted a church in 1987 called New Life Fellowship. And the, the vision was to, um, you know, plant a church that would plant churches. Uh, I was actually a, kind of a roving evangelist for a while within diversity, and uh, that was my great passion. But by year six or seven, that's how I felt being a pastor. The yoke was heavy and hard. Uh, I was exhausted. We had planted four churches, maybe five churches by the first six years. And uh, we were growing rapidly. We were multiplying. We were doing everything that we all know about for discipleship. Uh, But we were recycling the same old problems. And it was becoming very evident that people uh, were not changing deeply. And in a place in our situation in Queens, New York City, that was multiracial and primarily poor working class, it was obvious that the racial tensions would never hold with evangelical discipleship. Very obvious that you weren't going to have someone, you know, we say, who can your son or daughter not marry? That'll tell us if the gospel's changed your life. And so uh, we saw that something was missing. And I did everything I knew in terms of discipleship, you know, more scripture memorization and teaching scripture and more everybody in small group body life. And then we just reproduced unhealthy small groups, you know, and churches and you know, deliverance, prophetic ministry, signs and wonders, you name it. I mean, we did it. Prayer meetings, early morning prayer meetings, half nights of prayer. And trying to get at, you know, we call the, the, you know, the, the, the iceberg, what's beneath the iceberg in people's lives. So, but then on my own life, things weren't going well either. Uh, uh, one of our churches, one of our church plants had a split. And 200 people left to go down the street at a new church. And I found myself, you know, furious wounded, angry, hurt, cursing, I was just outraged. 
and but didn't have a theology for what was going on inside of me, uh, my rage basically because I was kind of I prided myself on being kind of a solid guy, type A pastor, just moving along. But this thing had knocked me off my horse, and uh, I had hatred for this guy. I didn't know how to get rid of it, and uh, so that was my first theological crisis because I was having and an inner world turmoil and emotions that I did not have a theology for. Uh, and then secondly, uh, again, it was one of these, then secondly, was I was, I was very tired and exhausted. I was, my joy for Jesus was shot. I mean, I was being a faithful soldier, but in terms of joy, you were having fun sitting in the third pew, but I wasn't anymore. And then thirdly, uh, my wife was really unhappy. Uh, she was lonely because we had four small girls at the time, and she felt like a single mom. And we were friends for eight years before we uh, fell in love and got married. So we had a, quite a long friendship. And Jerry uh, herself was quite a leader. Uh, but after seven years of you know inner city New York and church planting and all that, living next to drug dealers and prostitutes, I mean the whole thing. I mean she was just shot. And she said finally. So in 1994, I hit this wall personally, and and. I really don't know where to go. And I, I'm, I'm saying this with all due respects. I love the church. I mean, all my pastor friends were useless. I mean, in terms of like, you know, they didn't know what to do with me either because I'm cursing at this point because I have so much anger. I don't mean to be cursing, but I just, I just, I don't, I just, I'm just struggling. And they're just giving me pat answers. And I'm just like, you don't know what you're talking about. I, or, or delivering me from demons or praying over me or whatever they're doing. And I just realized this is not helpful. So I go to a Christian counselor because I figured maybe they can help me. I don't even believe in Christian counseling at that point, but I have nobody to talk to. So I start this inner journey of my own iceberg and what's going on inside of me. Um, and that's why I begin to like, you know, oh, I begin to like feel, I begin to look at things like the Psalms and laments. So I'm wrestling theologically with things for a couple of years. Uh, then in 1996, June, January 2nd, my wife comes to me and says, uh, Pete, you know, I, I, your, your leadership basically, in so many words, said, your leadership stinks. Um, you don't have the courage to confront the people that need to be confronted in here. Because, you know, if you, if you do, they'll leave the church. And you can't bear that. You're still recovering from the 200 people that left two years ago. And she was right. But I told her I was getting to it. But uh, she said, I'm going to another church. I'm leaving. And so she, was, she didn't leave the marriage, but she quit the church. And she started attending another church. So it was a bad day. That's why she's not here today. She's enjoying Franklin, all right, somewhere at a coffee shop. Uh, but um, so that was full crisis mode. Because obviously, if we didn't get it together here, I was going to resign. And, um, you know, we joke around, I'll go sell insurance in New Jersey or something, you know, maybe make money. Uh, but, uh, so we, we go away and, uh, for a week, and uh, these two PhD therapists, and Christian therapists, and to make a long story short, it, it, God met us in that week. And, and uh, I'll call it, we had, I really, we had like a second conversion, and it really was this. I, I realized I was an emotional infant leading a church, um, that I was trying to raise up mothers and fathers of the faith, be it, quote, discipleship-making movement, church planting movement, when uh, my own wife didn't feel loved by me, uh, it was like a joke. And I had large portions of my own iceberg that had not been really redeemed by Jesus at all. And, uh, and I realized that emotional health and spiritual maturity, you, you can't separate the two. And you know, it's kind of like 1 Corinthians 13, you don't have love. Paul says you have nothing. Who cares how many churches you plant? Who cares how many miracles you do? Or Who cares? You've got nothing. And I realized I've got nothing here but a lot of knowledge and all that stuff. And so that was really a conversion uh, and opened up a massive door because I'd never connected these two. Because I, up to that point, we had tolerated all kinds of immaturity. Um, if you were proud and defensive and unteachable, but you were a good leader, you could build something, we can overlook a few things, you know? Uh, it was kind of like you tolerate. It's amazing what you slowly tolerate when you're building, when you're concerned about numbers and growth. And um, it was a new standard of maturity. It was going to be based on your approachability, your softness, your humility, your brokenness, your love. We said no more lying anymore because we, we lied a lot as nice Christian people. 
You know, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Everybody's good. Everybody's good. Nobody's ever, and people aren't good, but everybody says they're good. And I used to lie on job evaluations. I was so unaware um, and so avoided conflict. And, uh, and so we began to do discipleship. I like to say that, that that really goes after the whole person. And I spent the next seven years dealing with what does it mean to actually mentor someone in the, emo- in the emotional component. We continued our mission and all that and doing the other stuff we do, Bible study, small groups. But, you know, things like genogram, your family of origin, going back three to four generations, how that impacts you, and limits, and loving well as a criteria for maturity. And so, and then, and then uh, it kind of led us to a, you know, slowly realizing that people, people's lives in 96 at our church, and we began to bring this to our church out of our own life, began to be dramatically changed. But we realized that people are, are going too fast, and they need to slow down. And I'd read, like I'm sure most of you, I'd read, you know, Dallas Willard and Richard Foster and Eugene Peterson, all, all the kind of the evangelicals that talk about slowing down. But it never worked. I mean, it's all good stuff. It's all good stuff. But I realized it wasn't, it wasn't enough. So I said, how do you slow people down in New York City who are going very fast? Initially, I didn't know it was the whole world going too fast. I thought it was just us who were out of control in Queens, New York. And so I took a four-month sabbatical, uh, got a Lilly grant, and went to learn from monasteries. And so I spent four months visiting monasteries, Roman Catholic, Trappist monks, uh, Orthodox monks, and evangelical monasteries. Went to a place called Northumbria in England. Went to Taizé in France. And, but to learn about silence and stillness and Sabbath and slowing down. Because I realized our tradition as evangelicals, we don't, we don't know anything about that. And I said, I'm learning, uh, this, is not, this is the wrong fountain to learn from. So we went for four months and we, and we basically lived the rhythms of this, you know, rhythms of kind of, we joined their monastic rhythms in different kinds of monasteries. And by the time that four months was over, our, our lives were pretty, we were pretty dramatically shifted. Uh, we didn't know what hit us. It was so foreign to us. And we realized, you know, that was, you know we spent 10 days in that place, you know, I mean, Spend 10 days in a place like that and get up three in the morning for prayer and five and six. I mean, you just, by the time 10 days is over, you barely know your name. You're just, you realize you have so many false layers on you. Uh, and so, and the question for us was, when we finished, was, do we go back to Queens? You know, Madhouse? Or maybe we should join a monastery. My mother-in-law wasn't excited about that. So, But we realized we had too much activity going on. We had more activity going on in our lives than our inner life could sustain. That's what we realized. We were doing way more than God asked us to do. So we slowed down. Uh, began to build in some monastic rhythms into our life and silence and stillness. And we continue with the same mission in our missional church in New York City and, you know, pastoring and leading. And, and, uh, but we began to build in, you know, monastic rhythms and along with the emotional health. So really, just, it's two big areas. There's emotional health thing over here, which is big. Um, and then it's also this, this kind of a slow down contemplative spirituality over here. And we're not talking about just throwing in a few spiritual disciplines. We're talking about the riches of monasticism to slow the freight train down so that we actually do out of a deep place of being. And, uh, and so, and finally, uh, I, you know, I actually I had a fourth conversion. Uh, there's more coming, I'm sure. And uh, which came, how, how do I apply all this leading with, inte- how, how do I apply all this emotional health and contemplative slow down spirituality to leading a large church. At that point, our church had grown quite large and yeah, 20, 25 staff. And how, how do you do this with budgeting and team building and uh, decision-making and strategy and all that, and hiring and firing? And, and so I, I spent a number of years working on um, the application, high-level, leadership is high-level discipleship. That's how I see leadership. And uh, I had my own journey with high-level discipleship and how do you apply this to actually leading a, a, a church and a ministry with all that complexity, um, and so, and I wrote the Emotionally Church Leader book. Many of you are, I'm sure, familiar with it, which basic thesis is this, that uh, we lead from our being, inner life, and that if these inner life issues are not solid in our lives, I don't care how big your church is, how wide your expanse is, eventually you're going to have problems. And I identified four issues that were core. Face your shadow, lead out of your marriage or singleness, slow down for loving union, and practice Sabbath delight. And they inform Everything else you do in leadership, the external stuff like planning and decision making, and stuff like learn. Oh, let me give me some, give me some, uh, you know, skills on how do I do better team building exercises or or planning, you know, strategic planning. And who do I bring in for that? It's not first about those skills. It's first who you are, and who you are informs how that's all done. But again, we're back to slowing down 
So you actually got something worth reproducing. And, and uh, so it's been a 23 journey, 23 years journey of what we call emotionally healthy discipleship. And, uh, and so the global church, as you all know, is in deep trouble. And I'm not going to go into that. And I, I, one of your Barner studies here, commissioned by NAVS, you know, talked about that. But so here, here's, sorry, this didn't come out well. You know, traditional discipleship is connect, grow, serve, right? We, we do, you do it. You know, get people in churches, get them connected, serving, growing, get them in a small group, get them in a, in a discipleship group. And then you'll make an impact. And I, I just want to say to you, it's not enough. I, I, I don't believe it's enough. Um, the, the, the problem is way too large for that. Um, and uh, so what we're talking about here is something called transformative discipleship. People come into our churches and are deeply changed. That's, that's what we're going after here. And, uh, and so you've seen this. Robbie stole this from me, and I know our person's really upset about that. So, you know, switching this thing around. But basically what we did was we developed a course that we call the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship Course. And out of this 23 years, it came out two years ago. It's two parts of this course. It's one course and two parts. A spirituality course and a relationships course. Let me try to explain each one. So that's what it looks like. And many of you are familiar with this Emotionally Healthy Spirituality book. It's probably our best-selling book um, you know, all around the world. And, uh, but books don't change people. Books are great ideas. They're wonderful. They get you started. But we realized that it has to be lived out experientially. And so we spent a number of years working on putting it into an experiential you know, curriculum. Um, with a daily office book that comes, again, daily offices comes out of monasticism. Um, a workbook that we learned to write questions. We spent some years with the Quakers on how do you write questions that get to the right side of the brain. Because basically evangelicalism, we're great at like head knowledge, but not at, we know a lot of things, but we don't, we don't know them experientially. We know them in our heads. And if you don't know it experientially, you don't know it. And uh, so we realize we've got to... And I've, I'd written Bible study guides for InterVarsity you know, earlier on. I just realized that this is not helpful. Uh, and so we, we put quite a bit of time into this, and the spirituality course, which is eight weeks, and, and the relations course, which is eight weeks. And, and we, we call it an introduction to discipleship that deeply changes lives. We're talking about a centralized course. Not a, this is not a small group curriculum. Be really clear about that. Um, this is a, a serious course. Now, if you think of Alpha, if you're familiar with Alpha, right? It comes out of Holy Trinity Brompton. There's a similarity in that this comes out of our church, New Life Fellowship Church in Queens. Um, but it's a centralized course, and the reason is because of quality. Uh, it used to be a small group curriculum, actually, Emotional Healthy Spirituality. And it was actually a, their best-selling curriculum in Zondervan for years. And I basically went to them and said, if you don't pull this from the market, I will never publish with you again. Because they bastardized it. They, they, it wasn't Zondervan. It was just the church did. They, they, just, they just, you know, oh, it's too much. We'll make it four weeks, or we'll make it one hour, not two hours. Oh, we're not going to do the daily office. Silence is too difficult. I mean, it's just like, we're going to squeeze it to Sunday school. It was just... Oh, we got a small group. We got worship. We got prayer. Oh, we got 45 minutes. We don't have two hours. I, I realized, forget it. And Zonderman said, listen, evangelicalism can handle a four-week curriculum, 55 minutes, three or four questions. That's the only thing it ever sells. So I said, well, listen. So this, is like, this is like five, six years ago. I said, listen. All right. so, so, so that's the problem. That's the problem. No one will ever buy into a discipleship course. I said, and they have, you, here's the thing. You can't lead it unless you've been trained. And you can't lead it if you don't live it. Or oh, you can, but we don't want you to. We say, please don't lead it. It's a very slow. And initially, Zonor was like, this will never work. And basically, over a period of time, we were, had relationship, and you know, they came through our stuff, and they, they got it. I just had to help them look at the long picture, the next 10, 20, 30 years. You cannot be thinking of just your sales cycle and all that stuff. Because I'm not in the business of selling books. I'm in the business of discipleship, transformation in our churches. So it's a centralized, high-quality course with a trained leader, and people are at tables with a trained table leader, okay? And, um, uh, yeah, so it looks like there, you know, you got you know, our, our church, you know, and, uh, and uh, so it's been refined over 22, 23 years, and, and now we're actually in the early stages of actually embedding it in churches. We're actually, it only came out two years ago as a box. They put it into a box. Um, and uh, I think it's like 600 and 14 churches actually doing it right now, which is a lot that we know about that are on our, that we're, 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 that are in our network. So here's the spirituality course. Let me just give you an overview of it. Um, so it begins with the problem of emotionally unhealthy spirituality, which looks at Saul, who's emotionally unaware and does not have a deep walk with God like David. Uh, what's interesting, I, 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 um, uh, Saul has a false self, right? Saul, Saul's like leading out of a false self there. He's, very concerned what people think of him. He lies. He, he's unaware of his stubbornness and jealousy and stuff. But he's very gifted and anointed. 
and he's leading a big church in a sense. And I had one pastor say to me, my whole life is a false self. Because I, 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 every room I walk into is a false self. Because I wouldn't know what it's like to walk into any room and be me. And this is one of the you know, sharp up-and-coming pastors in New York. I'm thinking to myself, that's, that's where we live. That's, that's it. And then he looks at, David, know your, um, looks at David, know yourself that you may know God. David, who's got a comfortable in his own skin, knows himself, knows God. Go back to go forward, looks at Joseph, who your family of origin, going back three, four generations, how, and, and, and how that's impacted who you are today, and how Joseph ends up being a blessing to the nations. Journey through the wall introduces people to the dark night of the soul, um, how we don't, you know, and Abraham sacrificing Isaac, but a whole theology of dark night uh, valleys uh, coming out of John of the Cross, and, and um, uh, that's the normal, the normal way God changes us is we hit walls multiple times in our lives. Most people don't have a theology for that at all, and they get all confused when life begins to fall apart. Uh, enlarge your soul through grief and loss. You know, we have a, two-thirds of the Psalms are laments, and a whole book called Lamentations. I wrote a paper in seminary on a lament, but we never made the application that this is core to discipleship and maturing and growing up. I mean, that, that's the disconnect in our tradition as American evangelicals. Um, and looks at Jesus in the garden. And introduce people to daily, discover the daily office and Sabbath because people are basically doing offices every day, rhythm, hopefully twice a day. And we use Sabbath as a weekly spiritual practice um, for a 24-hour period. It's quite big. How do I get rhythms in my days and my weeks with Jesus? <clears throat> and then growing into a emotionally mature adult introduces the whole concept of this has got to translate relationally to people. And then go the next step to develop a rule of life. How do I, it comes out of Manassas, and how do I create a life with Christ at the center? My whole life is Jesus, and whether I'm in the workplace, wherever, you know, how do I do that? The second course, part two, is what's called the relationships course. And uh, over this 22-year period, we realized in 1996, we had to disciple people in relationships. Uh, and that, again, evangelicalism, we don't disciple people on how to do relationships. We just kind of hope it goes, it's going to go okay. It's like get married, love Jesus, it's all going to work out. And you find out it doesn't all work out. Uh, tell people to forgive. Tell them to love. You scream it enough in the pulpit, it's going to happen. But no, they're going to do relationships the way their family of origin did it and the way their culture did it. And it's very much a discipleship issue, very much was for Jesus. And so we began in 1996 to work on skills. We spent years on this. And we ended up with eight uh, in particular, but things like you know, clean fighting. You know, Most people do dirty fighting. Uh, and they can be an elder in a church and a Christian 35 years, but they're in a conflict, they go back to being nine years old. Uh, and we teach people how to speak clearly, respectfully, and honestly, you know, how, how to listen. Uh, they do genograms, a real genogram, going back three, four generations of how it's impacted them, and uh, you know, how to clarify expectations. We say, what, what's, what's it, how not to do mind reading. Anyway, they're all, they're big. So each one of these, just like the other part of the course, in the spirituality course, each one could have been its own eight-week curriculum. Like in other words, these, this eight could have been, could have been sixty-four, and this could have been another six, eight weeks each one. But we decided to put it in a package that's an introduction to a paradigm, to a discipleship that moves you out of shallow discipleship to deeply changing lives. But the goal is you're actually going to create a culture, and the leadership is so going to live it. See, Derek introduced to it, but you see, when I'm with, what's your first name? Tim. Tim, and say Tim's in the church. <laughs> And so Tim tells me, you know, he's been through the course, and hey, he had a chance to go through the skills once, and but now he's going to leave his small group because he thinks that head, the leader is a jerk. The meeting goes a half hour, 45 minutes long because the spirit's leading, and he's got to get up at 5.30 in the morning. He's so frustrated because the guy doesn't have control of the group. He's tried talking to him. Tim's not listening. So he's, I mean, the other guy's not listening. So Tim says, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to another group. No, that's a discipleship moment. So this is the moment where Tim, all right, that's how your family did it, that's your, it's in his bones. We say Jesus can be in your heart, grandpa's in your bones. But this is a moment, say, Tim, remember that skill you got exposed to about clean fighting? You know, I'm gonna, we're going to walk this thing through, and you, for the first time in your life, are going to actually learn to work out a conflict with somebody. And I'm gonna, but after, maybe after doing that two or three times, he's actually going to start to change. But it's going to take that kind of, but see, you need some tools to actually walk him out into something. And that's what we found out, that that's why the culture is so important and the leadership is so, so important. Because what we're trying to do relationally is move people from brokenness in their relationships. You probably can't read this. Things like they're defensive, low self-aware, isolating, blame, anger, fear, self-absorption. Just people relationally are very broken. 
And so the key is how do I move them in discipleship to a sense of wholeness in relationships? And just, you know, this stuff is like, elect- it's like, it's like dynamite with Gen Zs and millennials. And we didn't write it for them, but it's, I'll be honest, I mean, it's just a massive response because it's just where everybody's living. And um, so, and here's our, you know, here's our, our, we would say this is our transformative pathway. Now, you know, you come to the church and hopefully you get involved. You, maybe we, we do alpha, but you're going to take this discipleship course. Like this is our DNA of how we're doing discipleship. Now there's, we do have community. We got life on life discipleship and small groups and, and, and serving, but and we're intentional about discipleship, but we have a very specific content we're bringing into this thing. Uh, this is not just, it's a theology, it's a framework, it's a paradigm, and it's going to inform your entire life. Uh, it's far-reaching, single or married, regardless of your age group. And then the, we're going to walk it out, and we're going to hopefully multiply by making disciples. But um, that, I would say, is, the, is really the kind of unique piece of what we're bringing to the table. So if you're going to, if I was going to say, what well, are four essentials that, that bring it together? I'll just go through this real quickly. You know, first is we get, people got to slow down to be with Jesus. Like that's like number one. And uh, that, that's, the, that's the center of the whole course is we have large numbers of people in our churches that do not have a personal relationship with Jesus. I mean, yes, they accepted Christ, they got baptized, but they're actually not cultivating their relationship with Jesus. And so we are bringing very intentionally silence and stillness to their lives. The reason that's so big, everybody, because if you don't have silence and stillness as a core practice in your life, that means that your whole Christian life is you talking or reading the Bible to get more knowledge. But if I'm in a relationship with anybody and all they do is talk to me and they never shut up and actually listen or be with me, I mean, that's a very immature relationship. And I'm telling you, that's where we are for most of the church. And so the thought of being still before the Lord, which is a command in the Bible, it's very difficult for people. And so like two minutes of silence is built into beginning and the ending of each we call daily office. And uh, so people do, there's a devotion that goes with the topics, and, but you're like, your coach from day one, you're going to start doing daily offices. You have to be with Jesus. It's the most difficult part of the course uh, for people. Then it's go back to go forward. People are going to do, you know, Jesus may be in your heart, grandpa's in your bones, but people are going to do a genogram of how their family of origin impacts who they are today. And I've had pastors say to me, I don't want to open up that Pandora's box. I said, well, you can be up there preaching your guts out, but this is where people are living. they got a lot of stuff they're carrying. Okay. And we have 75 different countries in our church. And we've done genograms with people from all over the world, rich people, poor people, educated, uneducated. And I can just tell you this, everybody is broken. Because of sin, every, every family is broken. And uh, things like abuse and incest and just inability to do conflict or feelings or connection. and It's just gigantic. So that, 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 that's a big theme in theology of the courses that I, I'm looking at how, how my family of origin and culture did life, but now in the new family of Jesus, and we do it differently here. So it's very intentional about theology. You're in the new family of Jesus. We don't do that here anymore. That's why, for example, something like racism, we don't accept racism. It doesn't belong in the body of Christ. So, so, so I don't care your family was racist or your country is racist or what your history is. It doesn't belong here. And uh, again, we're back to leadership as lives it, it has integrity to it, you know. And thirdly, as we learn skills to love like Jesus, and that's those skills. You're going to learn, you're going to actually learn some new skills to relate differently. And you can rest assured that 99% of the people in your congregation, uh, unless you have intentionally trained them relationally, they are doing relationships under stress like their family of origin. And that's why marriages, our, our Christian marriages really aren't very different than our folks who aren't Christians, because we don't really disciple people in that kind of level. And and then we practice Sabbath rhythms. It's pretty key. You know, that's how we live. We, we, we got to slow people down because if you're living like this, we're just doing programs and nothing's really changing. And, you know, most of us feel like that. And, you know, we're trying to move people to a rhythm of, of Sabbath, Sabbath and work, and not just vacations. And so, again, we're redoing people's whole understanding of life practically to form a new culture. And, um, you know, there's Sabbath, you know, a 24-hour time frame without anxiety or have to use to stop, rest, delight, and contemplate. I see the invisible God and the visible around us, you know. That's a good slide to use in the future, you know. So that's it, you know, and those are kind of the core thing. So that, that's a kit, which um, Zondran put it, the leader's kit in all in one shot. Um, and I want to encourage you to pick it up. They, they came, and I, but it's not just getting the kit. You've actually got to get trained, okay, to, to use it. But you want to get the kit, and you want to begin to work through it. Um, but here's the best results of a disciple school. One is transformed lives. And I say, you don't, have to, you, don't, you don't have to do publicity with it. 
Because if you will position people before Jesus with some silence, stillness, scripture, good theology, safe community at these tables, um, Jesus will meet people. Because he, he, Jesus has to meet people and change them. But if you're willing to at least with integrity and brokenness go on your own journey, create the environment for people to be met by Jesus, uh, you'll find people's lives are changed. You will not have to market the course because the changed lives will market it. It'll just happen. Um, people's personal relationship with Jesus will be deepened. Some people don't realize they actually become Christians. I don't care whether they think they became Christians or not, but I know they did. They actually got a relationship with Jesus going, which is fine. Future leaders are developed. Uh, a broad paradigm of discipleship is laid for the future. So this informs everything. So say, for example, you're doing a Dave Ramsey, which we do. I, I, don't, think we do, I don't know if we do Ramsey's course anymore, but if you're doing something on stewardship and money, you're going to talk about how'd your family deal with money? How'd your mother and father and your grandparents, how'd they define success and how'd that impact your understanding of money? But you know, the, the theology ends up informing everything uh, that you're doing. Um, you're forming, obviously, a new kind of community uh, around skills, around certain uh, things, acceptable and unacceptable, uh, greater impact in the world, and you're making disciples to make disciples. So here's a reality check. All right, guys, I'm sorry, this is not a quick fix. It's a very slow, and uh, it's hard work. This is just hard. Uh, so it's just hard. So we have, like, we actually have a training track, and we're like, we have level one, level two, level three. We've only, we've only like, got level one out right now, but, but uh, and we've got churches that are signed up, and we try to our ministry is as free as possible to serve those who are doing the courses. And we have what's called a, you know, you'll see it's like a like a, a, a bundle and a launch. I'm trying to think where I find it. Like you, you can now on, download the training. On, you, you order it and it's yours like for life. You can share it with anybody you want in your context. And, uh, and we have these coaches that actually like coach you for free. You know, it'll help you out. You have questions. Oh, people asking questions. Why are you quoting Catholics and church history? And isn't silence new age? And a lot of theological issues come up because this is not uh, traditional American fundamentalism. This is not. This is a, this is a, a much broader orthodox uh, discipleship, but you're going to be exposing people to stuff outside uh, our traditional, you know, memorize a verse and that kind of thing. It's, it's larger than that. And so you're going to need some coaching. We do live Q&As. And we've got mega churches doing it and smaller churches doing it. But you go slow. And, and, um, and this online training, you get to learn some, you know, some basically enough to get you started. Believe me, it's just enough to get started. And we say when you start it, you start it very small and you call it a pilot because you don't know what you're doing. And they're being exposed to it the first time. And you just go slow because this stuff is like a little dynamite. Uh, in people's on and so most importantly, I we write materials that's basically free for you. You get that downloadable training because we got to get you on our on our network so we can support you in it. Because you, you 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 don't know how much you need it. Okay, you need the free PowerPoint. You need the hand. You need handouts. You need schedules. You need a lot. And so we have a vault that we keep updating. And uh, for example, how do I introduce people to silence and stillness? Because you have to every every session you're doing a daily office with your group. And you're introducing for in two minutes being still before God. And people are very uncomfortable. And so you've got to get some, we, we give you some like, you know, some scripts, some models on how to do that. Because you have, you have to be on your own learning curve yourself uh, so that you can manage this thing. Uh, because stuff is going to come up. Uh, and so in this leader's vault, you receive all kinds of things. Uh, so you're going to want to get out there, which I think her name is Shelly, and you're going to sign up for something, and you want to come get that training from us, okay? So there it is, um, at emotionallyhealthy.org lead. With that, um, let me stop here for a second. I think that's where I want to, I mean, let me stop here. Uh, why, don't, why don't we start with Drew? You here too? Drew is here, and, and Steve. So why don't, let's do this before I start taking Q&A. Um, Steve, why don't you come? Okay, so Steve pastors at church in Illinois, and uh, why don't you take just a couple of minutes, Steve? And Drew, you come to wherever you are, and, and just talk about your just your journey with EH discipleship. Well, first of all, let me just say, um, so I'm a level three, I'm a level three coach, whatever they call that. I don't know. The name tag says I'm a level three coach. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, my involvement with emotional healthy spirituality. My wife and I got involved with EHD uh, about three and a half years ago, um, and it has become, it's it's part of the DNA of our church, okay? Uh, a lot of what you're going to be learning over the next two days, if you're involved in any of the discipleships, you're going to learn how to develop a, a pathway of discipleship 
for your congregation. Uh, what EHD has done for our congregation in, in our context is it is the foundation of our discipleship. And so it is partnered together with um, the one-on-one and the triad and the small group discipleships that we do in our congregation. Um, it has transformed my wife's life and my life and, and our walk with the Lord. It, it is, uh, it is, uh, deepened our relationship with our Heavenly Father, but it has also, uh, been a massive impact on how to, uh, be in relationship with, uh, with everybody else, period. Um, uh, hey everyone, uh, my name is Drew, I'm a pastor in Manhattan, and uh, I was actually with Pete for 10 years, I was on his staff, I joined his team in 2001 as an intern, and then ended up leaving when I was a senior associate pastor, and um, I've been gone for seven years now from the church as we've been on our own church planning journey, and um, you know, I think in today's cultural moment, especially amongst the church, I think you and I would agree that there's been uh, a number of stories of very prominent pastors and preachers who um, have failed morally, and when it comes to their personal integrity, um, it, what, what we, what's come to light has been that their personal integrity was, was crumbling while their ministries were this prominent success. Now, I, I know this. I know that you and I both know, like all of us know that any one of us are prone to that. And I think there's, there, what's so... Um, I think what's so startling to every single one of us and every pastor that I talk to, whenever we hear these kinds of stories, there's a shock factor because we're because on the outside, these ministries are gleaming and they're up and to the right, and it looks like the Spirit of God is moving tremendously in them. Now, I'm not trying to discount the work that God is doing, but I think there becomes this conundrum that all of us wrestle with. is like, how in the world has this happened where someone can be incredibly gifted up front, have great managerial skills, have great preaching acumen, and yet inside something is terribly wrong. And I I think in my own life and journey, I think emotionally healthy discipleship, um, my own journey has been when I met the Scazeros and kind of came into their orbit, um, and I've been part of um, church, um, really awful church situations where leadership were at odds, where there'd be fistfights between pastors and elders. And so coming into an environment now where Pete and Jerry was really kind of incorporating into the culture of discipleship in our church, a discipleship that that truly goes beneath the surface, that goes beyond the fluff of, and again, I'm not, sorry if this sounds like I'm discounting others, but so much of the discipleship paradigms tend to, that image of the iceberg, tend to look at that 10% above the surface. And really is not getting into some of the heart issues and, and the private issues and the integrity issues that each one of us as pastors, I know that I'm so good at faking it. And in many ways, what Pete and Jerry and this whole discipleship pathway was willing to do was to step into the lives of people in relational kind of proximity to say, hey, Drew, I'm not going to let you get away with lying about how you're really doing. And I think that push towards integrity was a push that um, led me to explore areas of my life that honestly, I would not still be in ministry today had it not been for the influence of Pete and Jerry and Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. Now, what's crazy about it is after I left New Life um, seven years ago, I left and I was like, you know what? I think I've kind of mastered this Emotionally Healthy Discipleship thing. I think I'm going to write my own stuff, you know? So I ended up um, leaving and uh, I... um, you know, we went off to plant a church, and during that season, I wrote kind of my own believers, new believers curriculum. I took the best of what I could from discipleship and from Pete and Jerry and from Mojali discipleship, and I, and I piloted this in, in our church as we were starting, uh, and it was awful. And, uh, <laughs> and then there was this moment for me, though, that was like, I was like, what am I, what am I doing? Like, I, I had become so arrogant to, like, think, like, there had clearly been something of the Spirit of God that had moved within kind of the story of what God had done in Queens and in Pete and Jerry's life. And I was like, wow, I, I have been so blessed by Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. Why am I trying to venture off into this new world? And so I ended up coming back. And I mean, Pete can probably tell you more of this story. Like when I left, um, and you know that experience? Have you ever been in that experience where you go from being an associate pastor to being a lead pastor for the first time? Anyone been there where it's kind of like, you know, I was like the hot shot you know, number two person who everyone said, you should be preaching more. You're so great. And all this and that. And I, and I really started to believe the hype. And so when I went off and I, I planted this church, um, I realized it was really hard. 
And uh, having a life of integrity, of being rooted in a life of prayer and scripture, and being a non-defensive person when critique was coming at me. I know I'm the only pastor here who gets critique, mm-hmm. so I know you might not, you might not relate to this, but I, the, the challenges of leadership became so real. Um, I would regularly send Pete two emails. Well, one email that said both of these things. One was, Pete, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the ways in which I just, I did not know what you were going through as a lead pastor. And, and so many times when you talk about leadership that goes below the surface, I did not realize the weightiness of senior leadership. Um, and the second thing I said was, was thank you. Thank you for investing in my life and for showing me that someone can actually have a vibrant walk with Jesus and a loving family life and a joyful experience of leadership. Like, thank you for that model, because otherwise I would not have known that. And, um, and so as a result, what's, what's been crazy is ever since I've left, I've become more of a fanboy. You know, I'm like emotionally healthy discipleship fanboy. I'll come on my own dime to wherever Pete is, and I'll basically share my story of how deeply impactful this uh, method of discipleship has become for me. And really, this is a course, and I know that for many of us in these environments, we're like, oh, I don't want another program, et cetera, et cetera. But like, um, I, what I'm trying to communicate is that this is really a culture that these courses are simply a pathway towards building an engine, a multiplicative engine of a deeper kind of discipleship that happens relationally. And so um, I can't recommend this enough. Um, And again, I've been removed from New Life, and uh, certainly our Hope Churches have been blessed as a result of Pete and Jerry's influence in my own life. But uh, I just want to encourage you um, for if really I think that this piece of discipleship that in the evangelical world, so much of it tends to be very surface. And so this is where I've certainly become uh, a fanboy and someone who really has seen how God has used the gospel of Jesus Christ through kind of uh, addressing kind of the deeper issues of one's spiritual journey. Um, to, and to so just change. real quickly, as a, as a church planter, you, you've got nine churches as a, as a network, but you, the one that you're leading in Midtown, Hope Midtown, you lead the course. And how does it function as a church plant how does a course fit in that for you? Yeah. Um, and so just a little bit story about our church. Um, so seven years ago, we started a church that's become a family of churches in the city. Now there's nine churches across New York. I lead the one in Midtown Manhattan. And our Midtown church is about five years old. Our discipleship pathway is, again, I, I wrote like a new believers curriculum as well. and uh, But then I was like, we used like Alpha, like the spirit of God has worked globally through Alpha which builds a culture of prayer and hospitality and all that stuff. So we do alpha, then we do emotionally healthy discipleship. So if someone wants to be discipled by me, they come, there's, there's a group of leaders that come alongside me in running alpha first. And then through alpha, as someone becomes a new believer, they join the people that I'm discipling. And those folks then end up going through the emotionally healthy discipleship course. And I personally lead the courses at our church. And the reason why is because I am such a type A workaholic, so my family of origin is kind of littered with not feeling anything and just plowing through, and and achievement and success sounds a lot like the evangelical story, right? Um, That I need to slow down. I need to be reminded of my rootedness and centeredness in the gospel found in Jesus. I need to practice a daily office. I need to live a life of integrity. Whenever I go through the relationships course, I am reminded time and time again of, am I listening? Is, does Tina feel loved by me? Am I trying to gain the whole world while my wife does not feel like I cannot sit and listen to her with great empathy and love and care? Like all of these skills and all of the things that we go through in the courses, all of these are reminders to me to live what I'm preaching because at the end of the day, do I want to be another story, you know, um, uh, that so many of us have been hearing stories about, you know? And so that's been my own journey. And in the churches that we lead, this is really where we've, we've um, found our kind of discipleship engine, the culture that we're trying to build. Okay. Let, let's, uh, and, and Steve, just so, you, you lead your course yes. as well. Yep. And you do it once, twice a year. Just, yep. just to give you just a real brief, if, if Pete here just gets saved on Sunday morning and, and so he comes to me after he's gone up and prayed and he says what's next 
the very first thing we're going to do is we're going to say people we're going to we're going to put you into either the next ES or the next EHR class that we offer, and so and so we'll roll enroll Pete in that class. Then we actually, alongside with the EHS and EHR, we do uh, intentional discipleship, and that is involved in a weekly, whether it's a one-on-one or a triad-type discipleship, where we get together. Uh, with uh, the individuals, and we go through four questions, and we study scripture. And so our foundation is our desire is to see every single person in our congregation who calls life worth their home to go through EHS and EHR. So at this present moment, we've taken about 75% of our congregation through these two classes, and that is the foundation of the discipleship. And so Pete has a great picture of a tree, and we thought we used that picture. And, you know, the discipleship and, the, and the, uh, the fruit and the growth of that comes out of understanding that the root system and the trunk is EHD, and then the discipleship grows out of that. That's great. So well, Let's take a few questions. I, I can think of a few of myself, but just a couple questions. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, I live right outside Washington, D.C. We run into the same problems with getting people slow down. Like, yeah. You know, a lot of business, a lot of, uh, how, how did you tackle that problem? Because one problem I have in my ministry is, is I've been teaching what you're talking about, but getting them to actually put it into practice is a whole other. It is, it is. Yeah, again, we're talking about changing a culture. Yeah. And, and, I mean, not just American culture or Western culture, but church culture. And so uh, I would say the answer is really slow. Okay. Uh, this is slow. This is, this is, I, I like the image of an icebreaker. Uh, if you think of the church has a discipleship or a way of doing life that's like three feet thick of ice, and we're coming in with an icebreaker like boom to begin to break begin to break up the ice so it opens up a whole world and getting people to slow down. It's good. That's why you say start slow with a pilot. It's got to get deep in you and some of your leaders as you begin to pilot this thing, and it, it's going to take time. Changing culture takes years, but the beautiful thing is it takes years to unchange it. Uh, there is no quick way to do it, um, and I. When I first, we first introduced this to our own church about a, a two-hour course, homework. I got to read a book. I got to do homework at the, about it. I got to do offices. They were like, what? And they're going to charge me 20 bucks for the three books? And I, you know, yeah, you're getting it at cost, you know? And, but like initially, it was unheard of. I'm just going to, my whole life, I'm just going to small groups. I'm having fellowship. And I'm coming in there and you're tearing me up. You're opening up all kinds of things. That was when we first started you know, how many years ago, the course, six, seven years ago, we actually have a formal DNA course of our church where everyone goes through it. Anyway, it's more longer than that. But now it seems like nothing. We're asking, what? This is your, your whole life is Jesus. I think we got to reframe when you become a Christian is to be a disciple. Your life is now Jesus. We understand people are at different places on the journey, but now there's a whole culture of like, this is, of course, you're going to give it an evening a week. And as part of your life, like the non-issue. And so, I, but it wasn't like that initially, even in our own context. So, yes. Would you expand more on why it is becoming so appealing to millennials? Well, I think, yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, okay, I'm sorry, thank you. Why is it appealing to millennials and Zs? I, I think that a lot of folks are, there's some group, people doing research from Gen Z because they, uh, we had, I think, 60 people under 25 at our last class. And, uh, <laughs> Because it's one number of things. It's very broken and vulnerable. Okay, there's no pretend in this. Uh, it won't fly. Number two is it's very experiential. Uh, it's not head. It's like you're doing experiential learning. It's very relational. Uh, high value of relationships, which is the huge thing. And I think the monastic silence, stillness. It's a, with, I guess the social media inundation, perhaps in the culture, there's such a draw to the monastic. I, I think there's, even though it's so hard to do, uh, I think all those factors. Uh, it's very unreligious. It's not a. Re- this is this is for the broken. This is raw. This is it's out there. So uh, at one point we just said, you know what, we're just going to go after the young generation because I, I can't be fighting with these pastors like this isn't. You know, this is a big change for a megachurch. This is a big change. Uh, because you really are slowing the church down in a beautiful way for the long-term health of where it's going. Yes, others, yes. And then back there, yes. Can you tell me how your discipleship courses tie to your small group model? Yeah, our small groups, yeah. The question is, how is our discipleship course tied to the model? We, we see the course as, if I, I could put it this way, you know, I don't know, that's, that's sorry. <laughs> uh, 
That's, that's people in our churches. They're bent over. They really are bent over. And, and they, they've been bound by Satan. And they really need to be straightened up, you know, constricted. I really, in some ways, EH discipleship is like a deliverance. It's so raw. Uh, it's so honest. Um, it's so unpretentious. Uh, and it's so messy, too, you know. And Jesus called, he said, are free. So um, this is our framework, our DNA that informs everything, informs our worship, informs our small groups, informs our mission, informs evangelism, because marriage, ministry, you name it, children's ministry. Uh, so it's, it's, we have lots of small groups, but uh, this is like the tree trunk. It informs everything. So we say at some point, you're taking this course if you're in this church, because this is how we as a community function. And you're going to hear the language being reinforced all along the way. Leadership at this point, because we've been in a long time, uh, if you're not living this, you're not going to be in leadership. Because we're creating a culture here, and if you're not Sabbathing or slow down yourself, it's a problem. Uh, so, and you're reinforcing, of course, how we do relationships and community. Yes. So I, I believe that sometimes before someone figures out what's next, they got to figure out what's now. I tell that to my kids all the time. So to the brother to your right, if I understand you correctly, someone joins the church, someone gets baptized, great, you have to have you here, we're going to the next course. Right. What's after that? So after that, and, and it doesn't always go exactly in this order. This is the ideal. The ideal is to put them into the EHS and put them into the EHR courses. But after that, then we get into the work of intentional discipleship. And so we do. Now, my wife and I, when we launched, when we launched discipleship in our church three years ago, when we began to make the transformation and the transition in our congregation, it laid upon our shoulders. And so to give you just a simple uh, picture of that, in the first year of that, my wife and I both individually discipled somewhere between 12 to 13 people each oh, every week. And so what that looked like is that looked like me sitting down with a brother, sitting down with a couple of guys, and number one, asking them some very intentional questions about their walk with the Lord. Things like, how are you doing, uh, you know, loving the people in your life? What, you know, what, how are you seeing God's goodness in your life? And then spending time in prayer and spending time in Bible study, whether it was using some, whether walking through the Gospel of John or walking through the Gospel of Mark. But that was that intentional week-to-week with the understanding that because we don't believe discipleship is optional. We believe that discipleship, when Jesus said, go make disciples, that's translated into while you're going, make disciples. So it's an assumption that while you're living life, you're going to be making disciples. And so in those one-on-ones and in those uh, triad groups, we're not only discipling one another, but we're also in the assumption that we're going to turn around and go disciple someone else. So if I took Pete through a 12-week discipleship, and at the end of that 12-week, I've given him the tools and the resources to turn around and go disciple someone else. I've taken him through emotionally healthy spirituality. I've taken him through emotionally healthy relationship. Okay, we're, we're working on that, which, by the way, I want to add that many of your folks will go through the course, and then they'll want to go through it again. And then they'll want to go through it. We've got people in our congregation who have gone through it two and three times because it is a hard work, all right? But then from that, with that core foundation, then we're teaching them how to be disciples who make disciples who make disciples. How effective is that coming out? How many, I know we don't like talking about numbers, but you talk about disciples. Yeah. I can tell you how is it, it working. Yeah. yeah, is it working? Is it working? I, I, I can tell you that it's working in our context. I, I pastor a church of about 150 to 250, depending on how devoted they are on the day, individual day. We're in a community of about 9,000 people. Uh, our congregation alone, we are seeing massive transformation in how people love each other, how people love people in our community. Uh, we are creating a culture where our community is seeing the love of Jesus Christ in our church, and our community is coming to our church to find out how they can love other people. And so in our context, it's been revolutionary over the last uh, three years as we've done it. So that's, that's what I can speak into that. Now let me just say this. All of this is not a growth, church growth strategy. 
When I kicked off Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, I didn't follow Pete's idea of going slow. I just kind of assumed that everybody was going to buy into it, and I just I did it. I preached an eight-week series on Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and I had 20 people leave. Not because they didn't love our church, not because they didn't like me. They left because this is too hard. Don't tell them that. I'm sorry. I wasn't supposed to tell them that. Okay. Well, I want to be real, you know. But they did come back eventually, yeah. And Joe, which is the Israel quote impact on yours? Fruit-wise, good question. I think yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, I think it's culture. The culture that's being embedded in the discipleship, because the language shapes culture. The language that we use, the, the kind of practices that we use, the Sabbath-keeping culture. So right now there's a culture in our church then that respects Sabbath-keeping, rhythms, that understands that we want to be about Jesus and that we want to build like a prayerful disposition. We want to build a culture of being kind to one another, being a listening community. All of these things are the elements of our church. I mean, I have loved, um, as, as hard as church planning was, I've actually loved the journey because there's something about being able to embed a certain kind of culture that becomes the disciple-making engine by which now I see it show up in families, like how they're now practicing the skills from generation to generation, how families are getting together. They're lighting a Sabbath candle together to say to mark the beginning of Sabbath together, to show rhythms of being centered and being rooted in the gospel of Jesus, right? And I, so I think, I think it's all those elements of it. And this is where it's not a program. It becomes part of the culture-making engine. And now just to, just to, I also wanted to talk about the millennial question because our church, probably our, our kind of our median age amongst our adults is probably like 26 years old. We're in Midtown Manhattan. We, our, our adult-to-kid ratio, our adults in our Midtown church is probably around 400 adults and we have like 40 kids. So I just want you to know like the, the, the ratio is pretty stark because that's what Manhattan is like. Now, with that said... Um, young people are, they're drawn to this because, I mean, the idea of authenticity and that, that image of an iceberg, I would say that that image is the image that hits the zeitgeist, like the, the cultural moment of young people today, is we want to get beyond all the surface stuff. We don't want anything that's too shiny because all that stuff, you know, it's so easy to see that stuff on social media and people want what's real and what's rooted. And even if you look at the statistics about churches, larger churches, like younger people don't want to attend larger churches. They want to attend smaller churches that are rooted with people. I think it's really this commentary of people that are yearning for real relationships, which is, um, which is part of the culture that's been um, embedded now, of course, we do have a pathway. The pathway is our yeah. groups, every group leader goes through emotionality, spirituality, emotionality. We want every group leader to be trained in how to lead it and make disciples through it as a result. So, um, so that's what I would say. All right, one last question. We've got to close it then. Yes. I'm going to assume that you're, if you want to use the term success, by below the waterline instead of above the waterline, number one. So my question would be, what behaviors are you observing in the people who have gone through this, especially in the areas of conflict within the congregation, that you see are different than they were before they went through that process? Yeah, I'm going to answer just because we have 30 seconds, all right, guys? So, yeah, the question then is, what, what, what are you behaviorally seeing differently, especially in the area of conflict? I would say that um, it's, it's massive. First of all, as a, on a leadership level, Stuff's not going to the elder board. 99% of the stuff's being dealt with within the congregation and stuff. You're actually equipping people to be mature and grow up. And you're creating a community that's actually in a healthy way serving each other as a counterculture. So again, you got a common language, uh, skills, and reinforcement, which tra- is a transformed community. So I would say it's very... I, 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 I'll speak for you guys. I, and I, churches across the country, it's a, it's a palatable shift in relationship, especially around conflict. Yes, every church got conflict. That's normal. But now we actually have some ability to do it without it going to always the leadership. That's powerful. And so you're raising the level of quality, I'd say, across the board in the whole church by doing the course. And I want to say what's been so transformative is maybe not even what's happened in the church, but what's happened in me when I received criticism. 
Like, I think the way that I handle criticism, the way that I handle conflict, it becomes a culture shaper within the church. Because now I, like, if people can experience me as being a non-defensive, non-anxious, rooted, joyful, loving human being, it it begins to shape culture in the disciples that are created, if that makes sense as well. And so in many ways, I think... As goes the leader, so goes the church, and I, that's what I experienced at New Life, and I, I realize that's been so beneficial to me. So, all right, you can make closing comments before you go. Yes, yeah, about this. The only closing comment I just want to make is to let everybody know that if you go out here today, uh, you can actually enter in, and there's a a website here that you're an email thing that you go go out here and enter the information. You could possibly win over eight hundred dollars worth of resources. Wow. Uh, today and the other thing about that is to tell you there is the EHD starter kit, which normally is $150, and today they're marking it at 49% off. So you can buy that kit for $75. And I don't want to sound like a sales pitch up here, but uh, but there's very minimal cost in this, and that is and they ship it to you that's, for free. and they ship it to you for free. So that's great. Uh, yeah. Thank you, everybody. It's been a pleasure to be with you. God bless you. These guys will be around to chat, myself too, and have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. That message was from Pete Scazzaro from Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. Make sure to share this episode with someone who you think might like it and connect with us at discipleship.org.